You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, I'm back from my holidays uh, in America, and we're going to be talking a bit about uh, all things stateside this week. Uh, lots going on as we approach the midterms, and with one eye on 2022, we'll be talking about what the numbers are telling us and the current political situation in Washington. We're also going to be talking about a slew of polling uh, that is Brexit-related. What else? Um, there's been a number of different polls with very different messages coming out of different groups, such as uh, The Sun, The Guardian, and other sort of campaign organisations, such as Best for Britain or People's Vote. And there's lots of different conflicting messages coming out of that polling. We're going to be trying to make sense of the numbers and what they all mean. And I'm delighted, as ever, uh, to be joined on this week's podcast by my colleague Leo Barassi. Leo, welcome back to Polling Matters. Hello, Kieran. Welcome back to you too. How is America? Yes, it was good. Um, I always like, I mean, we've said this before um, off air, haven't we? I always like spending time there to, you know, with family, of course. But um, from a political sense, it's... Um, it's always very interesting to get the kind of view on the ground just by like, you know, speaking to friends and family and um, watching the news and just sort of seeing how the coverage is playing out there. Um, I think it's obviously a very seismic time, very sort of uh, turbulent time at the moment. So while I was there, about a week or so, we had Michael Cohen, Trump's uh, former lawyer, essentially flipping against him and announcing in court that he had been directed to break campaign finance law at the behest of a "Quote unquote federal candidate," which it was always assumed, which all everyone assumes that that is uh, President Trump himself. So you know that was a big story in Washington. Of course, the even bigger story was the death of uh, Senator McCain, um, and it really struck me actually when I was looking at uh, some of the coverage of that that there's quite a lot of vitriol about. I think the the conventional wisdom or the sort of main view was that obviously he was a seismic, uh, a sort of huge figure in American political history. Once you know one of these one in a generation uh, senators that you get, much like Ted Kennedy, that's been around a long time and is generally well received. And there's there's lots of polling from Gallup that shows that you know he's uh, one of the more popular politicians in America, although his uh, his popularity has sort of dipped somewhat among Republicans given his fallouts with Trump. But then equally on the left, there are a lot of people that you know think his record is a bit more complicated and 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 you know weren't too keen on giving him the props that you know most people did and. One of the examples of this was um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez in, uh, I think she's running in New York, sort of the darling of the left, coming out with a tweet, very sort of complimentary to Senator McCain, you know, doing doing the right thing, in my view, um, but getting quite a lot of abuse and, and pylons on Twitter from her own supporters saying she shouldn't be, uh, she shouldn't be complimentary. So, you know, that, that, was, that was interesting. But I think it's time now in America where you're going to start looking ahead to the midterms in November. And, and I think with one eye, as I said on the in the introduction, on 2020, because although it's a common refrain to say it's too early to talk about 2020 now, I think actually once the midterms are over, that's all people will be talking about. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the polling on this and sort of where we stand at the moment, I guess I'm struggling a bit, and particularly on your point about the kind of partisanship and and the division, because. Um, I guess people have been saying for a while, and it's sort of received wisdom, that um, America split into two camps and whatever Trump does, he's going to win the support of his voters and he's going to be hated by the Democrats. But I've always felt that that fails to explain the way that he was uh, he came into presidency with historic unpopularity, that he was absolutely hated um, as a president by, by many people. And... Um, didn't seem to sort of have the kind of half the country on his side as as you'd expect. Um, but I guess I was revisiting the numbers um, 
in the last few days. And what's really striking is whilst his um, whilst disapproval of him has gone up and approval has gone down very slightly after um, the stuff that's happened in the last week and and uh, prosecutions and uh, guilty guilty plea. Um, that's a sort of that's a change that's just come now, and it's still quite small. And actually, what's happened is over the last six months or so, his approval has stayed pretty much flat. And that's really a contrast with what happened what happened under the last three presidencies, so Obama, Bush, and Clinton, who all just steadily became less popular over their first year. And actually, you can look at Trump's numbers now and say he's not particularly unpopular compared with recent presidents. He started out much more unpopular, but I don't know, you could you could almost make a case that he's no longer especially unusual in in terms of uh, views of him. Now, I think that might be a bit strong, but it's sort of forcing me to to correct my view a bit where I've tended to just think he's so unpopular anyone who says that um he's anything but a drag on the Republicans and um he's got any chance of being re-elected is just wrong. I wonder whether actually his chances and the Republicans' chances might be better than we've been giving them credit. Well, I think the mid the, the midterms, I mean, let, let's jump ahead to those. You know, it's important to remember how that works. So you've got the House of Representatives, um, which is up for election, very similar to the Houses of Parliament in the sense that it's, you know, similar-sized constituencies, some, some gerrymandered, uh, beyond all recognition of what makes sense, but you know it's ultimately a sort of first past the post uh, two horse race, uh, much like the Houses of Parliament. And, and on that, and, and the whole and the whole country's up every two years. On that, the Democrats look like they're going to do very very well. Um, the conventional wisdom is they need to win by sort of around six to eight points to actually win a majority, just because of that gerrymandering. Although people disagree on that, that looks plausible. Um, but the Senate is very different, and the Senate is only one third up each time. And on that score, um, it's much harder to see the Democrats taking the seats that they need to in order to win. To put some numbers to that, of the 33 seats that are up, um, only nine of them are Republican. Um, so obviously that narrows the gap, you know, narrows down the target list. Now the Democrats need to take two seats, a net gain of two, um, to take the Senate. But they are defending lots of uh, lots of seats um, in states that are essentially Trump states, um, places that Trump won in 2016, and also places that Mitt Romney won in 2012. Uh, I'll give you one example: like West Virginia, uh, you know, for example, is a place where you wouldn't think the Democrats would have um, would have a Senate seat, but they do. So, I, mean, I guess the, I guess the, the the upshot is for the Democrats to take the Senate it looks very unlikely. To take the, the House feels plausible. Mm. Um, to put, put a number on that, um, since we last spoke, 538 have published their uh, forecast and currently have the Democrats being a 70 to 75 percent chance of taking the House. Um, so I don't think they've done the Senate yet. Um, no, and I'd, I'd be surprised. I mean, I think the Senate, lower. I think this, yeah, I, I could see the Senate being almost the reverse. I suppose it's possible that there's just you know, a damn breaks and, you know, the, the Dems, the Democrats do just hold every difficult seat they've, they're defending and they do take those two you know i mean i'm, I'm sure that, that, that but i think but i think the interesting thing that is forcing me to reconsider what i thought a few months ago is that uh despite everything that's happened trump hasn't become much more unpopular that he sort of he's he very quickly reached a level that he's at now and has stayed there for a long time and it sort of feels i don't know i mean stuff could get worse for him the Mueller probe could get more brutal uh, and perhaps that will shift thing, but it's striking that 
uh, even though lots of things he does individually are extremely unpopular and almost everything he stands for is unpopular and becoming more unpopular, it doesn't seem especially to be hurting his ratings. That's true. Um, and he's a very unconventional president in lots of ways. And his approval rating, uh, for reasons you've just outlined, is, is similar. You know, normally it starts reasonable and goes down and he's, he's started terrible and sort of creeped up. But I guess where I, where I net out is that I think his approval rating needs to be better than it is now to win re-election. Um, and I suppose it could creep up bit, bit, bit by bit, but I don't see much reason to think it's going to get that much higher. Well, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about in this, which I think is, is a, a major factor, is the state of the economy. Now, mm. he inherited economy in, in good state. It's, if, if anything, seems to have got better. Um, so compare i have looked at the raw numbers comparing his approval with both obama and clinton and he's only slightly more unpopular but we're comparing a time where trump currently has four percent unemployment compared with the time where obama had about nine percent unemployment and clinton had around six percent unemployment so he's got an economy that's much better than either of them had now it's been a while since it was a downturn in the us it's entirely plausible that could happen Probably not before the midterms, but uh, a very good chance, I think, that it that, that could happen before the presidential election, which typically you'd expect to hurt the incumbent's chances. Yeah, and I, I suppose that people listening to this, you kind of have two choices on how you think it might go. Um, you might think the economy sort of is reasonably robust and his, his approval rating just steadily creeps up one point here, one point there, until all of a sudden we're doing a podcast where he's on like 46, 47, 48% approval. That's obviously a very different situation. But like you say, there's also the plausible analysis that the good economy is kind of baked into his rating already and, and it's only got one way to go. I mean, don't forget... When you do issues-based polling and you and and people ask you know approval of Trump's handling of immigration, the economy, foreign policy, uh, and so healthcare, and so on and so on and so on, it's only the economy that he tends to have positive ratings on, and also his his um, uh, actions in North Korea, and that's something that okay, it's gone out of the news cycle at the moment, but it was a big deal when he first met Kim Jong Un, so it that's going to be I think that's actually going to be quite important. Uh, to his re-election chances because it's going to be one of his signature um, achievements. And if, if that turns out to be a busted flush as well, going into 2020, he's going to struggle. Mm. And of course, the other factor is who the Democrats put up, right? I mean, um, you would think that uh, there's quite a wide variation in the potential popularity of, of Trump's opponents. Yeah, and, and that... that... <sighs> There isn't a lot of polling out about that at the moment. So just, just to put some names out there, I know there's some people that are interested in this that listen to the show. Uh, specifically, um, there was a question about Bernie Sanders. But so with William Hill, for what it's worth, Kamala Harris is the current favourite for the Democrat um, 2020 Just remind us who Kamala Harris is. So she's the sort of freshman or junior senator from California, um, was the former attorney general there. So um, similar to Barack Obama in the sense that she's, She's in her first term in the U.S. Senate. So I suppose the one thing you would normally attack a candidate like that on would be their inexperience. But she's got very obvious, uh, a very obvious riposte to that, which is that, you know, Senator, um, Barack Obama was the same. Um, and of course, she's running against someone who previously had never held elected office. Yes. And I think the other thing is with her is that uh, California, I understand the primary there is a lot earlier than normal. 
in the cycle for the Democrats. So in theory, her her candidacy could get a major boost very early on from her home state, even if she doesn't do well in the traditional early states of um, uh, uh, Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. Um, of course, I suppose if she doesn't do well in California, it could equally, you know, it could equally kill her candidacy if, say, Bernie Sanders was to win California. Um, as an aside, it's important to remember a couple of things before we go on to this uh, with the Democrats. Uh, point one is that they allocate their delegates proportionally, um, which is different to the Republicans. So if the Republicans, if you win 35% of the vote and that's the most, then you get all the delegates. Uh, so it's quite easy to knock out candidates pretty quickly. The Democrats is proportional. So if you've got 10 candidates all getting 10% of the vote, then they get roughly that proportion of delegates, give or take. So this could drag on, basically, is what I'm saying, if it's a uh, if it's an extended field. And when when does this get going? It's sort of the start, it's sort of Jan- January-ish. Yeah, it's just it's January 2020. But I think in reality, once the midterms are out of the way, you're going to start to get a lot of speculation about who's running and, 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 and that sort of thing and, and who's... Start having exploratory committees, exploratory and stuff like committees, that, right? and, and I think we'll come to that in a moment because there's some stuff on that I want to want to cover. But um, the other point is that this super delegates uh, issue, uh, which was so controversial in the last election, which is when Sanders ran against Clinton, which is basically when you have these sort of party insiders that are also delegates alongside the um, pledged delegates, who are the people that are allocated based on what so, happens so in the primary. Who haven't been voted for, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. So these these might be these can be uh, senators themselves and, and Congress people. Uh, they can be sort of party chairman in local states and that sort of thing. Now, there's a there's a very big debate here in the Democrats about how important they were. The Sanders people say um, the fact that they declared early gave Clinton a sort of perception of a bigger lead than she actually had, uh, and they're they're very sore about this. Um, and, and this is part of a wider thing where the Sanders campaign feels that they were yeah the, the, the DNC was biased in favour of Hillary Clinton. Um, the Clinton people will say, well, you know, the, the election was never actually that close. It was just, you know, because it's proportional. He was never really going to overturn um, Clinton's lead, superdelegates or otherwise. But the point is, they're not going to be a factor in the next... That would, uh, that would be the correct view. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's for listeners to decide. But yeah, I think so. Um, but they're not going to be... A, they, they don't get a vote on the first ballot, for example, next time. So they're not really... They are involved if there's like a brokered convention, but they, they can't declare their hand early and they can't vote in the first round. So that that controversy may be less significant next time. But going back to the candidates, so Kamala Harris is the favourite, 9-2. to two. Bernie Sanders, second favourite, 5-1. to one. So These are very very close together to, in, in real terms. Joe Biden, 7-1. to one. Elizabeth Warren, 8-1. to one. Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand and Michael Avenatti, who's uh, the lawyer, I believe, for Stormy Daniels, all at 12-1, to one, as is Oprah Winfrey. And then there's a host of other people. So very quickly degenerating into joke candidates right or people who are I, I i would i would say so and i think you know what i often try and check myself talking about 2020 because it is you know, it is very early and what happens in november is going to change the entire tone of washington um particularly when it comes to questions like impeachment which will come to but it's quite clear when you look at the odds now what the skeleton at least of the field's going to be I mean, give or take some of these people not running. So, so here's here's a question: two and a bit years before uh, the last presidential election and the one before that, and so on, how possible was it to know who the candidates were? I guess I remember Obama seemed to come out of nowhere, and that felt like no one saw that coming. Um, but 
was that unusual? I mean, can you normally predict? Like, are we? Is this a bit of a fool's game? Us trying to think who it might be now, or can you normally have a fairly good idea at this point? I think you can have a norm, a fairly good idea about who the key candidates are. I think to say with any certainty who a nominee will be is a bit foolish. I mean, I suppose with Hillary Clinton, you you could probably have seen that coming, although she was yumdenard about whether she was running, and if she hadn't have run, then Joe Biden probably would have done right. So. Um, there'll be a lot of that going on this time too, uh, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, which we'll come to. Obama, yeah, I think in Britain we didn't see him coming, but he did have the keynote um, speech, I think John Kerry's uh, sort of, um, what, what do you call it, uh, convention. convention. So yeah. it wasn't like he was a nobody who just ran out of thin air, you know, and he was, he was a senator. So were people calling him as the next president? Maybe, maybe not. But I think that... that you and I are discussing a field where maybe a lot of other people won't be, but I mean that that. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is we if we haven't heard of them, they're probably not going to be uh, coming out of nowhere. Maybe, but I mean some of these figures like Kamala Harris or you know Elizabeth Warren even I don't think will be household names in Britain, right? So so what I'm saying is the untrained political eye might look at uh, Kamala Harris and not have a clue who she is now and think she's come from nowhere, whereas we're talking about her now, aren't we? So mm. I, I think there's a reason, I think you can get a reasonably good idea of the field. But one thing I wanted to talk about was um, a sort of shadow boxing race that's going on in the Democrat field, which is between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And there's a couple of really good articles that I'd recommend, one at BuzzFeed, one uh, at The Atlantic, and I posted links to them on Twitter. That just that just sort of spell out how these are two people from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, so the left, if you like, with subtle differences that are maybe quite important. But ultimately, the suggestion is that after the midterms, there's going to be a, almost a decision made between them as to who runs, because they both recognise that if they, if they both run, they're going to split that vote and maybe uh, you know harm their their progressive causes. But there's a lot of interesting dynamics going there between Warren as the kind of pragmatic, legalistic, gets things done in Congress, proposes bills, that sort of thing, versus Sanders, who's the sort of tub-thumping leader of the movement, you know, where have we heard that before, who sort of inspires young people and maybe has that 50-state political operation already from 2016. Um but there's a few other things 50 about... straight state strategy worked out so well for Howard Dean, right? Well, yes. But the point is he's got money and he's got loyal fans so and in, in, in a race where delegates are allocated proportionally he's going to be a serious candidate if he runs there's a, a somewhat ironic he's going to be 79 isn't he well, I, mean, I was about to say is this remotely serious well i think he's exploring it seriously but there is a slightly a somewhat weird dynamic going on here where warren was supposed to be the progressive candidate to take on hillary clinton and for whatever reason didn't and then sanders jumps in and did reasonably well i think by by expectations at least i mean he didn't get the nomination of course whereas now it's almost flipped a little bit whereas if sanders runs it's gonna be very hard for elizabeth warren in fact there's a recent poll for what it's worth um in new hampshire which has bernie sanders on 30 among democrats um likely primary voters for the university of new hampshire this is uh sanders on 30 biden 19 warren 17 um so you can see how the warren sanders vote there is 47 percent and that's without even considering all the other people that people are suggesting they might vote for. Am I, am I right in remembering that that's a bit of a turnaround? That there had been one before that they put Warren miles ahead. Yeah, about a year previously to that, there was a poll with Warren in it and without Warren in it. And I think the the issue with Elizabeth Warren is it's not clear if she's actually going to run. 
I, I, I have two conflicting hunches but here. But surely that's the case for all of them. I mean, it's equally not clear whether either Sanders or Biden are going to run. Well, yeah, but I, I feel like... I think Sanders and Biden feel like they want... And this is maybe a bit of speculation, but I feel like they want to run in a way that it's not clear that Warren 100% definitely wants to run. I feel like she'd almost... If there was an excuse... This was going into before I was in America. If she had an excuse not to run, she might not. Having said that, she's doing a lot of things that suggests she might be running. In fact, she recently proposed a bill in the Senate, which, uh, let me see what she, let me get this right. So she calls this the most ambition anti-corruption legislation proposed in Congress since Watergate. And she's proposed a whole host of measures, including banning members of Congress, the cabinet, the federal judiciary from owning individual stocks, banning foreign lobbying and lobbyist donations to campaigns, prohibiting ex-presidents and former congressmen and women um, from lobbying, uh, from being lobbyists after they lead Congress. She's not taking any PAC money at all. She's published 10 years of tax returns. I mean, she's clearly going on this anti-corruption, uh, anti-corruption message. So uh, what you're saying is that this uh, white knight crusading cleaner than clean campaign uh, uh, bill must be the sign of uh, political ambition. Yeah, I think, I, think it's, I think it's smart, actually, as well. I think this is the first person I've seen coming out with a message that I feel like can beat Trump. I, I think, like, if you're... And it was pretty good timing considering all the stuff that happened with his lawyer and all the rest of it, um, you know, in the last last few weeks. If she goes into the campaign running on things like Black Lives Matter and, you know, hashtag me too, she's obviously going to have to address those things. But if, she, if they're front and centre, you do worry a bit about how, how that plays. Yes, it motivates a democratic base, but what does it do with independence? I don't know. I think anti-corruption feels like a message that everybody can get behind. Like, you know, um, I'll give you one stat here. So this is from uh, Suffolk University. Donald Trump promised to drain the swamp to reduce corruption in Washington. Which comes closest to your view? During the administration, it's got better, 23%. It's got worse, 57%. So there's clearly a feeling that this is, a among Americans, this is a dodgy administration. So that might be the sweet spot to... Um, to hit him on but uh yeah it's not clear if she if she'll run i think if she does just, run I'm she'll just, get the nomination I'm just reflecting on your point there of sort of effectively and i'm paraphrasing you a bit but she's she has to take on fairly centrist issues um to to defeat trump and i see your point there but there's also the battle of winning the primary and wasn't one of sanders's massive problems that he was really bad at getting to the issues that mattered to african-american voters who are obviously a major part of the democratic base and therefore the people who choose who their candidates going to be so i'm just wondering whether this is potentially a massive stumbling block for her if she is coming across uh, in the same kind of way that sanders do- uh, does then is she not potentially going to struggle with the same voters that lost Sanders. It's a good point. And I think I'm thinking more of the general election. You know, what's the message against Trump when, you know, you're you're going around Ohio and, uh, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan and those places. But you're absolutely right. In fact, one of the real problems Bernie Sanders had was over, which is why he lost to Hillary Clinton in the the primary was with African-Americans. So you're right. I mean, she's going to have to play a delicate balancing act between what she says in the primaries versus what she does in the general um, I just think that in terms of beating Trump in a general, that's the right. Yeah, this anti-corruption message is 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 on to a winner. But um, I guess it's something we'll come back to. Um, I, I, my hunch, is, what, what's changed for me since being there is I think that I used to think she'd be the nominee, and if she does get the nomination, she'll lose. I'm now a bit less sure she'll be the nominee because I'm not sure she's going to run. But I think if she does run, I think she could get the nomination. I think, and I think she, if she does get the nomination, I think she'd win. 
let's move on to Brexit stuff. Um, it seemed like when I was away, there was a bunch of polling out from different people. And we obviously cover this a lot on this podcast. Um, there was two quite conflicting messages that I saw. One was coming out of The Sun, a poll from Delta Poll, which seemed to suggest that in The Sun's editorial opinion, um, that you know, sort of confidence in Brexit or you know, strength of feeling on Brexit was hardening, as in people were more solidly behind Brexit and wanted to just get on with it. Um, and then there was other polling in The Guardian um, on behalf of Best for Britain, has, you know, People's Vote, that sort of thing, which was suggesting the opposite, which was saying that um, actually there's increasing support for a second referendum and if there was one, Remain would win. So I thought this would be a good topic to discuss today on this pod, you know, because it's polling related, but also because there's lots of conflicting information out there, a lot of it quite partisan, you know, it's coming from a certain line that people want to push. And therefore, it's quite hard to get a sort of independent read on what's actually happening. I mean, you've seen some of that polling, presumably. What did you make of some of it? Yeah, I have. I think I struggled to uh, see anything in the numbers that points to a definitive argument either way. So um, we have this this Delta poll piece um, arguing essentially that, as you say, that opinion on Brexit is hardening. Um, and... I really struggle to see how they made the case for that. So I guess it's based on a couple of questions that they had in particular. First, one that said, I've changed my mind on whether we should leave the EU or not. And only 13% of people agreed with that. And there was little difference between Remainers and Leavers. Um, and if anything, it suggested that Remainers were slightly more likely to say that they've changed their mind. Um, and then another question that said we should just leave on March 29th next year as planned, like it or not. And that had 47% agree and only 28% disagree. So uh, net of plus 19 agreeing that we should just leave on March 29th. Now, I get how you can look at those two questions and use that to construct an argument that uh, people haven't changed their mind and there's pretty strong support for the idea of just going ahead and leaving in March. I think the trouble is neither of those questions are particularly well phrased. So people don't like to admit that they've changed their mind, not explicitly. I think a better way to do it is to ask questions uh, that allow you to, in, to deduce whether or not they've changed their mind rather, rather than get them to admit it. Um, and I mean, just one one hint in the poll that there's a problem here is that, as I said, only 11% of leavers agreed that they have um, changed their minds. But yet in another question, 18% of leavers agreed that Brexit is a historic mistake and only now people are realizing it. So so point is more leavers say that it was a terrible mistake than they're willing to admit that they that they've changed their minds so i'm just not convinced that that poll really makes the case enough to be able to argue that there's any kind of hardening on brexit and then i think the polls trying to suggest that people are hugely softening on brexit i think equally suffer from problems they do. I mean, on the Delta poll issue, I think that it, it's striking that if that had been commissioned on behalf of the Mirror or the Independent, it probably would have led with the, the stat that you mentioned, which is that Brits think Brexit is a historic mistake. Um, mm, and the total of that was 44% <coughs> agree, 30% disagree. So net plus 14 agreed that it was a mistake. Yeah, and it obviously wasn't covered. Um, and I, I guess the challenge with this sort of polling is that 
it's almost impossible to include absolutely everything and uh, if you've got a series of statements which suggest oh I haven't changed my mind or we should just get on with it well there's a whole host of other statements you could have tested which might have got a more negative perception of Brexit which is almost the the, 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 the same criticism you can have on the flip side of some of this other polling from um, you know from people's vote and so on so if I look at some of the numbers I mean there was an article um, in the mirror which suggested that 4 million people um, were considering voting Labour, um, but wouldn't do because uh, because of uh, Labour's sort of Brexit policy. I'm always a bit nervous when I see these questions or these write-ups that take a, a percentage in the poll and relate that to the number of people in the population. And I don't know, is there actually anything wrong with that? Like, I guess it gives a sense of accuracy that may not be justified, but there's just something about it when they when they say X million people will do this or think this that always gets me a bit. Well, I, th- I think I think I think that's the point, isn't it? It's giving an impression of like it's quantifying it, which in my I think psychologically gives a sense of statistical certainty that isn't there. But I want I want to focus on this mirror article because I, I think. Uh, it was a bit problematic. So the headline reads, Jeremy Corbyn could win 4 million in capitals, more votes, if Labour leader was clearer on Brexit. Now, leaving aside the 4 million point, I suppose that's a somewhat accurate reflection of the data, but it's very, it's kind of very sort of creative in how it's interpreted it. So let's go into some of the numbers. So the byline is a YouGov poll of 10,000 voters published exclusively in the Sunday Mirror suggests that Enough people are considering a switch to Labour to make him PMs, him being Corbyn. Right, so how have they got to this figure? So 4 million people is basically the people in the poll that have said, I'm not voting Labour now, but I would, would strongly or somewhat consider voting Labour. Um, basically, I might consider voting Labour next time. And they, they used that as a cross break, and they wanted to understand what that audience thought about different things. So um, the article says 4 million people are thinking of switching to Labour. Okay, that's if you assume the direct uh, percentage to the population, that's true. Okay, if you want to extrapolate that, we can argue about whether you should extrapolate that four million. But yeah, that is fine. Um, that would make him PM. But to win them over, he must be clearer on his Brexit position. This is where it starts to get a bit fu- uh, fuzzy for me. I mean, the first implication is that somehow he can win all four million over in one go. That, 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 that's the way it's written kind of implies that. So it goes on to say, nearly 7 in 10 want to stay in the EU and 59% back a second referendum. So that is true. Like a cross-break of that audience, um, when, when asked the sort of leave versus remain uh, question, let me just get these numbers up here. So just to be clear, when we're saying 7 in 10 want to stay in the EU, what are we... This is 7 in 10 of that 4 million. Yeah, exactly. So there was, okay. there was a referendum question which had remain on 53, leave on 47. Right, yeah, that's what I thought. And... Um, the, the subsample of 1,353 Labour target voters is what they call them. So these are not Labour voters now, but they've indicated some willingness to consider Labour in the future. 69% of that group have said they would uh, they want to remain versus 31% saying they want to uh, want to leave. And on the second referendum question, which as we know, um, there are there are issues about sort of question wording and so on. So um, the question goes, when the negotiations with the European Union about Brexit are complete, would you support or oppose a public vote on the outcome? bit wishy-washy as wording i think um overall 44 percent supported that 35 percent opposed um but 59 percent of this labor target group supported that and 27 percent um opposed and then there was another a series of I've, questions i've got to say i still don't get where what the 
what they're looking at to justify the four million more votes for Labour. So there's this target group that they're calling Labour target voters, which mm. they're defining as those who would not currently vote Labour, but say they would seriously or might consider voting Labour at the next general election. So and that's four million they, people in there. So that's four million their, people. Yeah. So the fact that they might consider voting Labour, and yet, and of those, what seventy-ish percent say that they want to stay in the EU. That in no way justifies a headline of Jeremy Corbyn could win four million more votes if Labour leader was clearer on Brexit. And it's even that I agree, and it's even that last point that I think is a bit. What are you really saying? If he's clearer. So this is based on numbers that say, um, so so there's a, there's, a, there's a series of questions which say, how clear do you think the attitude towards Brexit is of the leadership of the following parties? It has Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn and so on. So overall, um, 20% think uh, of the overall population think Corbyn's policy on Brexit is clear. 63% think it's not. Of this target group, 23% think it's uh, it's clear. Uh, 63% think it's not. So quite similar to the overall population. So basically, what they've done is they've looked, they've they've, they've created a group of Labour target voters. They found that 70% of them support Remain. They found that that, that group kind of supports the second referendum based on the wording that they've decided to use. And they've also found that that group doesn't think Corbyn's position on Brexit is clear. Um, but that's not actually that different to the overall population. And what they've done is they've extrapolated from that the idea, basically the insinuation is that he should change his Brexit policy and support a people's vote. But the data doesn't really say that. It just says... Mate, you're being so generous. The data doesn't remotely say that. And it hasn't even, and the interpretation hasn't even begun to take into account the potential of lo- losing voters if Labour were to come off the fence and, uh, let's say, uh, swing behind a, sec- uh, uh, a vote on the deal. Well, I think more importantly, we've got a target group of Labour voters. We don't have a target group of Tory voters to compare to, do we? So, I mean, you could easily write a poll like this. I suspect that would show May should harden her position on Brexit because Tory considerers really want a hard Brexit. It's just very, very... Yeah, it's very, very creative use of numbers, shall we say. I think it reflects a wider problem with the strategy from the sort of people's vote, best for Britain crowd, which is that I, I get that they're trying to change the Labour leadership's view on these things, which is fine. I mean, I understand that principle, but the numbers don't just don't really back up this idea that this is going to be electorally beneficial. I mean, well, so I guess I, I slightly differ from you there, just on the basis that this this poll doesn't show it, but it's more like this poll didn't try and find that out. Like the questions in this poll have no ability to answer the, uh, to tell you what impact it would have on people's future votes. So it's not that it's untrue that it's potentially beneficial. It's just that this poll doesn't ask that question. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't go it doesn't even go the full hog to say if they were clearer, would you vote right. for them? Or if Labour backed it, then um what would you say? But I mean or- do we do we really think that they haven't tested that? Well, sure. Perhaps perhaps the reason that the numbers haven't been included are because it did badly. I'm not saying in this particular poll, but I find it hard to believe that they haven't just done a poll that said probably the first thing they did was say, right, if Labour didn't back Brexit, what would you do? Well, let's talk about this because one of the things that's happened whilst we've been away has been that there's uh, been an announcement that uh, the uh, People's Vote campaign have got a million pounds from a guy called Julian Dunkerton, um, a co-founder of Superdry, which interestingly, it has to be spent specifically on polling. 
um, as far as the, the coverage and I think the press release suggests. Um, and a million pounds to spend on polling is quite a lot of money. Uh, I had a look at um, some comparisons. In the 2017 election, um, the Tories spent more than that. They spent um, four million on, on uh, Linton Crosby's company um, and a total of around six million on market research and canvassing. But Labour, the entire campaign, they only declared 658,000 on market research and canvassing. So a million pounds, it's a lot of money for a camp, uh, uh, issue campaign like this to be able to spend on polling. I mean, it is, it is an awful lot of money. Um, I guess the question is, how do you spend that in an environment where it doesn't, in my opinion, feel like there's been a sizable shift against Brexit, at least in the terms of wanting to stop it? I mean, they're, they're working with a difficult environment. Um, if you look at some of the YouGov numbers, okay, 74% think Brexit's going badly. Um, that's up from 54% last year. So that, that does lead people to think, okay, people are turning against it. But actually, there's a big difference between thinking it's going badly and wanting to stop it. Yeah, is it inherent in the nature of Brexit that can only be a failure or is it just these idiot politicians doing it badly? Yeah, exactly. And I think, look, there's one plausible explanation here, which is that some Leave voters want the Canada Plus model and um, they're not, it doesn't look like they're going to get it, at least at the moment. And therefore, they think Brexit's going badly. It doesn't mean they want to not leave after all. Um, and there's there's another question that um, YouGov track, which is on, do you think, in hindsight, do you think Britain was right or wrong to vote to leave the European Union? Now, I will concede the latest round of that data is actually reasonably strong for wrong. So 47% think it's wrong, what uh, was wrong to leave the EU, 41% think it was right. So that's a six-point lead for wrong. But two points. One is that we've seen six-point leads for wrong before, and it typically reverts to a mean of a one or two point lead for wrong so it's not clear whether this is a permanent trend or a one-off so one to watch maybe but the other point is very basic uh, use of numbers is that three quarters think brexit's going badly but only 47 percent think it's wrong wrong decision to leave it sort of tells you in a nutshell i mean we can overcomplicate the numbers but in a nutshell those numbers are different aren't they so clearly there's a sizable chunk of leavers that think it's going badly but still think it's the right decision um the third thing i would say about some of this brexit polling is that one of the big things, we talked about this uh, People's Vote poll that said 53% would back Remain in a new referendum, 47% would back Leave. Trouble with those sorts of questions, um, trying to predict what a future referendum, how it would go, is that it's almost it's almost not worth the paper it's printed on, you know. It's, it's almost not worth doing because you are, what you are doing there is you're taking an additional step of trying to almost model an electorate for a referendum that isn't happening, or at least isn't happening soon. Um, so you've got no way of knowing what the voter comp uh, co what the sort of what the construct of the electorate is going to be uh, in, in that referendum. You've got no way of knowing that, and why would you? So that's that makes it difficult. And also, I think that there's that's before you even look at the logistics of how that campaign would go with the Tory party and the government and all the rest of it being supportive of Leave. So very difficult environment. So I disagree with your last point. Now I've got a few different points to to, to respond on here. So. Um, I don't think it's correct to say that uh, because this isn't an accurate modelling of the electorate, then it's not really worth worth the digital ink is printed on. Um, I think if these polls right um, would vote remain, would vote leave, started showing, let's say I've always said 60% would be the kind of magic number. If they started uh, consistently showing 
60% would vote remain, 40% would vote leave, then I don't think it matters that it's not an accurate representation of the electorate. I think that that would create its own reality once it was well known among media and political circles that the polls were consistently showing a very clear lead for remain in a hypothetical second referendum. Then I think that would shift things in terms of what was then available on the ground and how people were feeling about the debate. So I do think that there's something useful in this, um, in, in looking at those questions. My second point is, I think you're right that there hasn't been a radical shift, but we shouldn't completely disregard the evidence that there has been a small shift, at least in support for another vote. So John Curtis quite helpfully pulled together all the data he could find on um, a people's vote or second referendum, um, which mostly is quite difficult to use because um, every agency is asking the question differently. But you can compare YouGov's questions. And they do suggest that there's been a little bit of a shift, a couple of points um, now to pretty much parity in terms of people saying that there should be uh, another referendum compared with where we were a few months ago. So not radical, but some shift. And now I guess my third thought is, what do you do with this money if you're uh, people's vote? And I think what you can do is um, run published polls like this, that if and when they start getting useful numbers that make their case, then they're good for driving, as I say, the reality of how media and, and politicians respond to it. If they do start getting consistently clear leads for Remain, then that becomes that gets a dynamic of its own and starts, starts shifting what happens in the real world. Um, but to be honest, you're not going to need to spend a million pounds on public polls. You're not going to be able to spend close to it. Um, you know, let's say a decent sample size national poll, 15 questions, might cost what five thousand pounds something like that mm. that's a very small chunk of a million pounds really what you're spending this money on i assume is private message testing focus groups you're understanding what shifts the audiences that you want to and actually i think we've kind of seen the evidence of that to an extent that the concept of the people's vote is obviously something that's come out of polling and message testing is more popular than the concept for a second referendum. Um, I had a look at Google search trends, how much people are searching for the phrase people's vote compared with how much they're searching for the phrase second referendum. And it's really interesting that people's vote has now overtaken second referendum as the thing people are searching for. Um, now, might not stay ahead of it, but it seems to me that they are thinking about using they are using this money or money they've had already to uh try and shift the the arguments the messages the concepts used in the debate and i think they've had one success there presumably there, there's going to be others that they're looking at yeah i mean i do wonder though with this i mean okay you can call it a people's vote but fundamentally what they want is a second referendum where we can remain after all don't they so isn't it one of these things where okay it's conceptual at the moment and maybe it's there to influence labor people labor members of parliament right i get that so that's a, maybe a different argument than if you're trying to convince parliament as a whole but i don't know i just feel like it's, it's it wouldn't it be quite easy to rebut quite quickly if it ever became a serious proposition to say well, well you, you just i just, stop I just don't, don't think so i mean once once the idea is do you want to give the people a say or not rather than do you want to go back to the people and ask them again because they got the answer wrong last time, like like Ireland? Um, I just think... But doesn't John Curtis in his article basically acknowledge that this, 
leave voters are more uh, are more likely to be against another vote once they realise that Brexit itself is on the table. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. It does depend how you phrase it, but and sure, yeah, there are many other factors at play here, but just simply narrowly. <clears throat> On, on framing it as giving the people a say versus framing it as let's have another vote on the same thing that we voted on last time has clearly pulled well and has become a way the debate is, is talked about. Look, I mean, we're talking about it as the second referendum rather than the third referendum. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was a bit of framing. The media came down on calling it a second referendum and that's just the term that, that's been used. And these terms matter. I mean, look, even the concept of remain versus leave, leave is a much better word than remain. I think the idea that we shouldn't worry about language because people will understand what it's really about, I, I, I really wouldn't agree with that. I think um, the terms that are used and become established in the debate are really important. Well, yeah, the message is certainly important. I think if I was um, using some of that money, some of the audiences I'd be interested in are conservative remainers, I'd say uh labor leavers and then probably um this other group that didn't vote last time which i kind of alluded to in my description of this um why i don't like the uh hypothetical referendum questions so just to go back to that briefly so remember we had this 53 47 lead for remain among a sample size of 10,000 so when you look at remainers and leavers 94% of remainers want to remain and 92% of leavers want to leave so there's a bit of churn in there, but you know it's it's in single digits. Now, what the what this poll and what most polls don't do is they don't publish a cross break for people that didn't vote last time. And I think they should start doing that because it's going to be important a for the the proportion of new voters in the in any future hypothetical referendum is clearly going to be really important if they skew one way or another, isn't it? Um, but secondly, just from a message testing point of view, as you raised, um, understanding who those people are and what messages resonate with them is going to be really important. I mean, I guess it's plausible to say they're more likely to be younger people that couldn't vote last time, maybe, or, or younger people that didn't vote last time but have been animated by Brexit since. Um, but we don't know. And I think that's that's a real gap in our knowledge from polling. Right. So just doing a quick back of the envelope uh, thing on that uh, that poll suggests to me that remainers and leavers were about 80 percent of the samples. So you have about 20 percent of people who um, were asked in the poll um, what they would do in the referendum um, who didn't vote last time. Now, some of those will have said that they wouldn't vote don't know or didn't give an answer, but that's only 13%. So at the very least, and in fact, there are some remainers and leavers there. So you definitely do have some large proportion of that 20% who didn't vote last time, who are now included in that 53-47. So yeah, yeah, that that is a potential issue here. Yeah, I think just, you know, we try and bring it all together for the people listening. So if what we're saying is in a hypothetical future referendum question, where we say Remain is leading by six points. What we're really saying is that Remainers and Leavers, there's some there's some regret on both sides, but it sort of equals itself out. So there's not really been any sizable change in Remain or Leave. There's not been a sizable shift of Leavers to vote Remain, for example. So the reason for that lead for the Remain side is the new voters. And therefore, if that's 20% of the electorate, or 30% of the electorate, or 5% of the electorate in a future referendum, that basically decides the result, assuming that the Remainers and Leavers don't change any more in the future. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, not convinced there's been a sizable shift against Brexit. Doesn't mean there can't be, though, does it? 
Yes, I think that's entirely fair. There has been, I think, a bit of a shift, um, certainly in the uh, view that the, the, the people should get a say on the final deal, but it's hard to see any radical change in public opinion over the last six months. Final final point related to this, because I mean, I think one of the things we say on this podcast, it's all very well looking at the numbers, but actually it's what matters, what happens in the real world as a result of them that is important, right? So there was a good article in The Spectator by Katie Balls, um, which talked about the sort of behind the scenes people's vote strategy, which basically has three points, right? Point one is they want to get Corbyn to change his mind and basically have Labour policy be have a second referendum. They want to see the polls shift in favour of that and in favour of Remain, and then they want to get Parliament to then vote for that, because obviously Labour alone are not going to deliver a second referendum in Parliament as it is currently um, sort of as it currently is. So step one, and this is how we'll finish the podcast today, I think. But step one is getting Corbyn to change his mind. My my position is basically that I don't believe there's been anywhere near a significant enough shift to make Corbyn do that. But then at the same time, the Labour Party itself may decide otherwise. I mean. What do you make of some of that? I mean, Labour conference is coming up. That's going to be on. I mean, some people are trying to make that a big deal uh, to try and get the Labour policy to change. So wh- wh- where's your hunch? Where, where, where do you think we're going to end up? Yeah, it feels like a bit of a simplification. And it, who knows where the simplification has come in. But the idea that all that matters is what's going on in Corbyn's head. There's a lot of independent minded Labour MPs who are in different parts of the pro and anti people's vote camps. Um are they? Do they also need to change their mind? Or are we expecting that they're going to be completely led by Corbyn? I'm not sure it's so simple. It feels to me that the second part of, of the plan here kind of has to be the first thing, which is you have to see a bit of a shift in public opinion first, which um, then kind of forces the hand of a lot of uh, MPs, perhaps in both parties, who uh, at the moment would be reluctant to uh, suggest that the, the, the debate about whether it should happen should be reopened. Yeah, and time runs out. As as we know, we are leaving um, next March one way or another. Um, that's all we've got time for for this week's podcast. Big thanks to Leo again for joining me. Hopefully that makes more sense of the numbers for you and uh, the, the America stuff was interesting. Um, if you like what you hear, as ever, share us on social media. Give us a like or a positive comment on iTunes and other podcast apps. It does help get the podcast out there. Um, but for now, thanks for listening and have a good week. <laughs>